This is Under Review, a podcast about rethinking humanities graduate education, a collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. I'm June Key, a recent comparative literature PhD graduate from the University of California, Irvine. And I'm Lauren Burrell-Cox, a recent English PhD graduate from the University of Florida. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only consider careers beyond the university, but also think through structural problems within the university. Each episode, we speak with experts about issues surrounding prestige, labor, contingency, and diverse postdoctoral pathways. It's time to put graduate education under under review. What is the role of humanities centers and institutes, such as the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere and the University of California Humanities Research Institute? And what can they do to spark change in graduate education? In this episode, we speak with our mentors, Dr. Barbara Menel and Dr. Kelly Ann Brown, in a wide-ranging conversation about how humanities centers and institutes function as an incubator for intellectual and professional networks, hubs for experimental programming, and safe spaces for grad students. We discuss how underfunding the humanities might lead to a host of issues downstream, including space for cutting-edge scholarship. We also speak about distributed models of mentorship and how they can prepare students for multiple career paths. Welcome to Under Review, Dr. Menel and Kelly. It's really nice to have you both here to talk about humanities graduate education. Uh, I was hoping that you could introduce yourselves a little bit for us. So Dr. Menel, would you mind going first? Yes. Hi, my name is Barbara Menel, and I'm the Rothman Chair and Director of the Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere at the University of Florida. All right. And Kelly, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I am Dr. Kelly Brown. I'm the Associate Director at the University of California-wide Humanities Research Institute. Good to be here. Great. So we all sort of know each other a bit from, you know, working together, but we just wanted you guys to maybe introduce um, a little bit about your career trajectory and how you got to your current roles. So starting with um, Dr. Menel. Uh, I'm a professor of film and media studies. I'm in two departments. I'm in German studies in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. And I'm also in English, where I do gender and sexuality studies and film studies. My position as the director of the Humanities Center is a time-limited position. That's an administrative position that one takes on in addition to one's tenure line. Um, I would also like to say, because this is about graduate education, that I worked before I became a graduate student and that I did several internships in publishing and uh, in cultural institutions before I came to the United States. And you asked also how I ended up in my current position. I became the director of the Humanities Center because I was always interested in interdisciplinary engagement. And as a graduate student, the Society for the Humanities at Cornell University was really important to me as a place of intellectual exchange that allowed me to have a sense of the humanities beyond my home discipline. I'll go next. Uh, I've been at UCHRI for just about 10 years. I will be celebrating my 10-year mark uh, in the fall. 
And at UCHRI, I've held two different positions. I first began as something called a research programs manager, and that was back in 2012. And they, when I was in conversation with them, they pitched it to me as an alt-ac postdoc. And it was neither alt-ac nor a postdoc. <laughs> but at the time, you know, that was, you know, how we were talking about those things. So I began um, in a contract position. It was a two-year gig. Uh, and I picked up my family and moved from Oakland, where we owned a home, still own a home, to Orange County. At the time, my daughter was 15 months old um, with the idea that we were going to do this for a couple of years. And I, I made the we were struggling financially still from 2008, 2009. Things were still quite tough, especially in the Bay Area and what the industry my husband was in. So I pitched it to my husband that this was an opportunity for us to have health insurance and for me to make contacts. And so I began in that position and the two years was stretched to three as contract positions often are. And around that time, uh, the associate director left the Institute and uh, after a failed search, I was invited to assume the position. So I've been uh, the associate director for, I guess, seven of the 10 years I've been at UCHRI. And the way that I ended up at UCHRI was through my network. I had I was always close with my advisor um, at UC Santa Cruz. So I did a PhD in literature at Santa Cruz. And my advisor in the literature department was also the graduate dean. And as I was finishing up my time at Santa Cruz, I went to him with a question around how to represent my teaching on a resume. So not on a CV, but how would I communicate teaching to people who might not understand what seven years of teaching in a college classroom could mean um, without talking about it in terms of project management or managing people. After graduation, I had a baby and took a year to stay home. But during that time, he reached out to me when a job opened up at UCHRI to see if I was interested. And when I said, yes, I was, he then reached out to the managing director of this Humanities Institute at Santa Cruz, Irena Polich, who then reached out to UCHRI to say, we have a known quantity, give Kelly an interview. And so that is how I ended up at UCHRI. I mean, I needed, I made the case and I had experience and I had worked in government for five years prior to pursuing a PhD. So I had a diverse range of work experience, but ultimately I am at UCHRI because of my network. You know, it's very interesting to hear how people end up in the roles that they do. I think through doing this podcast, we've seen a lot of people don't really, you know, ever know exactly what path they're on, but then it all makes sense looking back. So with that, I was really wondering what you both see as the role of humanity centers and institutes in supporting graduate students above and beyond what a department can do. So maybe I'd say two different things. So one, maybe I'd start with how can humanity centers and institutes be different than departments, sort of what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages? And so first I would say that humanity centers and institutes can't really reform graduate education because they don't do curricular development, they don't make decisions about degrees, um, you know, they don't do stipends. But then at the same time, they also have more freedom in programming and supporting graduate students because they're not bound by disciplinary um, expectations. 
I would say at UF, we're very conscious of always being in a supportive role, both vis-a-vis -vis the graduate students, but also vis-a-vis -vis departments. We never want to be understood as undermining departments or in um, sort of competition with departments. Uh, so I think that gives uh, humanity centers and institutes uh, real freedom to uh, build something with interested faculty, uh, administrators, and graduate students. So I think the important things that humanity centers can do is initiate uh, debates and conversations with graduate coordinators, chairs, deans, members of administration, with graduate students, uh, support a conversation with data and information. Uh, we can give uh, direct support to graduate students in terms of expanding their vision for future career, helping them accessing skills, articulating their passion, finding their passion. And that can then include engagement with public humanities beyond the professoriate. But also, I mean, a lot of uh, humanities centers also support research. So I think that's something that we don't want to forget, that humanities centers and institutes also support what's understood as traditional research and professionalization. I think uh, humanities institutes are also instrumental in advancing the debate on a national level. And we know, you know, I mean, uh, Kelly herself has been important in that, but also other centers like Humanities Without Wars as a consortium in the Midwest. And then I think we also benefit from being linked to those national organizations like American Council of Learned Society, National Endowment for the Humanities, National Humanities Center. Um, Lauren was part of the recent advocacy for the humanities through the National Humanities Alliance. And we learned that graduate students really enjoyed advocating with uh, political representatives for the humanities because it gave them that sense that they were actually doing something. And so I think there is a limit to what humanities centers can do in terms of real curricular reform. And that is... And I think that is the difficult conversation that colleagues have to have with each other. But that also gives us that freedom to do kind of a multiplicity of approaches uh, and work so closely with graduate students and then enable graduate students also to work with each other across disciplines. I have similar things to say. I agree, though. I think it's really important to begin with how humanity centers what they can't do, what we can't do is that curricular reform or the, the overall graduate um, educational reform. You use the word freedom. I was going to offer the word experimental. So I think then as a result, the Humanities Center or Institute can live in a more experimental space in order uh, to engage in conversations and work um, and networks. And I think that's, it's, that is, has been liberating, I'll speak um, personally, in terms of running humanists at work. Um, I think we're also, um, to, to borrow again the freedom, I think we're free from certain kinds of metrics um, that allow us to take risks and to push um, because, you know, the way in which we compete for funding and prestige is different. Um, and so I think that it, it works in our favor or it has worked in our favor, which is not to say we don't have metrics to meet. Um, they're just different. 
Um, I think the interdisciplinary mixing is critical. Um, and I, while I recognize that, um, you know, the AHA, for example, has done incredible work around these conversations, I think a lot of the things that we experienced in humanists at work, it really did go across the disciplines, um, even while recognizing that there are particularities for people who um, graduate with some degrees. I think generally there's a sh- there's enough of a shared experience that I think the Humanities Center gets to take advantage of that. Um, I hear from a lot of my colleagues um, and also grad students that they see the Humanities Center as a safe space. Um, and I think one of the ways that they mean that is to um, more authentically represent their multiple selves, you know, so they're able to talk about side hustles and side gigs in the humanity center. They're able to talk about doubts. Uh, They're able to ask questions without hopefully being impacted. So they talk about it as a safe space and that's strikes me as something important. Ideally that would be the case in the department too. Um, But, you know, as we're working towards that, I think the humanity center can do that. And then the last thing just to draw upon my introduction is that, the Humanities Center oftentimes has a very broad and more diverse network uh, in terms of, you know, intellectual network, for sure, professional network, um, and also how the Humanities Centers and Institutes are networked on, even on their campus, um, the relationships with staff at various levels, but certainly nationally. Uh, since we talked so much about the uh, significance of humanities centers and institutes for graduate education, um, not about yourself so much, because I think maybe you were more involved than the average graduate student. What do you think humanities centers and institutes can offer graduate students that is really instrumental and significant for the development as a graduate student at a university? I think being able to have cross-disciplinary conversations is probably what I see as one of the the most valuable things where it wouldn't have to be someone who's super involved in the humanity center as far as like maybe working there, but as just an experience that you can have. If you go to the talks that the humanity centers put on, at least I know ours, we really strive to kind of find interdisciplinary scholars to come talk. And maybe you do study something that's similar, but from a different field. And so I think being able to have that perspective and understand how someone else addresses a particular topic is important, but also then as a spot for collaboration and thinking about how do you collaborate with other people in the humanities that maybe aren't in your department. I think for me, that was something that I felt like was very, you know, intellectually rich that you could do that just like a department can't really do that because you're in your department, you're in your field. Uh, You can read, you know, in your seminar, a history book if you're in an English seminar, but it's not the same as getting to like interact with some uh, people who do that every day. And so I think that that's what I see is like, it's kind of like this hub for everyone to come in and connect. And that's what I saw as that. And I mean, I think also like our center is focused on the public sphere. So I also really liked that it was something where you got to work with the public. And I think that also graduate students would really benefit from thinking about how do I take my scholarship that I do with in my, you know, academic thing, but 
but it is still something that you can take out there into the world and see how it interacts and see how uh, you can work in the community and with community members and think about what are the relationships you can build. And so that it's not so much like the university is this like entity that's kind of hard to access, like more of crossing paths with the community and thinking about how do you build relationships between the university and the community so that they're not so separate. I think that that's also something that the Humanities Center can give graduate students. Yeah, definitely. Second Lauren's point about collaboration. Um, I feel like I've never collaborated so much in graduate school as at UCHRI, even just at a very granular level of like going to meetings and giving people feedback on their, you know, grants or, you know, on various like stages of the project and everything kind of that I do is also given feedback by all of the staff members at a very detailed level. And so it's, um, it's definitely like a positive experience for me because I think, um, before that, it was very much kind of self-driven, like isolated um, intellectual work that it's it's between like you and your advisor and maybe a few of your committee members. Um, and I feel like it's very enriching to have so many different perspectives um, in the process of collaboration. Um, UCHRI is more, I would maybe more kind of focused on funding academic research um, and, and maybe less public facing, I mean, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, than the UF um, Center for the Humanities and the public sphere. And so for me, I've um, really kind of learned about how to work with faculty um, from the administrative side. And it's been helpful to me as a grad student to kind of demystify a faculty member's name from their reputation, for instance, and just see them as just like a normal human being who has, um, you know, the, this job and is is in this profession, but is not necessarily like, you know, is this like person who has like all this star star power? Does that make sense? Like it sort of demystifies them as as a human being, you know, UCHRI and also UCI's Humanity Center. Both of them have definitely served as a sort of safe space for me. So to kind of echo that sentiment um, in a space where I could connect to like-minded people um, who are, you know, maybe more interested in the public humanities or more interested in career diversity um, after the PhD. Um, so to dig in a little bit more into like what kind of work that you guys have been doing, um, for Kelly specifically, we've been working on humanists at work together for the past like two and a half years. And the most recent project that Humanists at Work has is the Stories from the Field data booklet. Um, and that's a booklet that kind of tracks alumni and the career paths and economic outcomes um, after the PhD, as well as kind of more qualitative um, studies of their self-reported experiences. Um, and so I know you're very passionate about alumni tracking, alumni engagement. Um, can you speak a little bit more about why you kind of focus on alumni as a, a large part of your work and what you're planning to do um, in the future around that? Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for that. And I just want to acknowledge that um, the data booklet was uh, initiated by and funded by the Council of Graduate Schools 
who were funded by the Mellon Foundation. So a lot of uh, and Humanist at Work was funded by the Mellon Foundation. So I just want to acknowledge how critical that institutional support has been. We, I, we, we wouldn't exist without that. So um, I'm really thankful for that. Um, I've been, I've just found the engagement with alumni super interesting, just on a personal level. I'm interested in the future of work. I'm interested in what people are doing and how they think about it, what they see, the kind of language they use in different industries, what kind of skills they use, how that relates to the PhD, how they think about the PhD. So I just personally find it interesting, but it's also really valuable for grad students because um, especially for first-gen grad students and grad students of color who may not have the kind of professional networks that other graduate students have, um, alumni at work provide a resource that is absolutely invaluable. And the sooner graduate students have access to these alumni, the better. And that's not so that you can think about what you're going to do post-PhD from day one, but just to be in conversation. And they can be really intellectual conversations. They don't have to be just, you know, sit on a, an alumni panel and tell us about what you do at work and transferable skills. They could be intellectually generative. And I think that's actually where I would love to see conversations go. So to take big topics and to talk about them, to talk about abortion rights, to talk about voting, you know, we, why can't our alumni at work who are working in voting organizations or who are working, a, a close friend of mine who received his PhD from Santa Cruz, he's now uh, the director of development for Planned Parenthood. Like we could have conversations on topics that matter, but it's hard to have those conversations and to tap that knowledge if you don't know where your alumni are. So for me, uh, you know, we just have to know at the very least where they are. There's a lot of ethical reasons for that, which I, you know, I'm sure everybody is aware of. Um, I, I do. I also want to acknowledge uh, David Lawrence, um, who's retired from the Modern Language Association. He was the director of research for MLA for many, many years. And when when Humanists at Work was first getting started, he was the one who pushed to make sure. And as a result, we have a lot of data to show for it. Yeah, I think that I'd be so interested to see what people go on to do as someone who's interested in other careers outside of the professoriate. And I wanted to ask Dr. Minnell about how she approaches her mentoring. Just to give some background, Dr. Minnell and I have known each other for a very long time. She's been my mentor. She's my advisor. She started advising me, I think, back when I was in undergrad. So in like 2014, I remember I wrote a research paper on female screenwriters in Hollywood, early Hollywood. And she came to me and asked, you know, would you be interested in turning this into a larger research project? And I had just never really considered anything like that at all, being only, I think it was my second year in college. Uh, and so she really encouraged me to apply to a research um, scholarship that the university had. And that was kind of how we just started off doing that. And I don't think if she hadn't come to me and said, you know, this was a good paper, you should keep working on it, I would never have done that. But then as I've gone on, I've had these other thoughts and I've gotten involved in other things, podcasting, filmmaking. And so I was always kind of expressing to her that I had other aspirations um, or other job areas that I was interested in. So I was really wondering, Dr. Mendel, then how do you approach uh, mentoring graduate students who are interested in things kind of outside of what uh, the typical academic career path is? 
Okay, I would acknowledge that I find this a little bit of a challenging question in the context of our conversation. And so um, I will say some general things about my mentoring first, but then I will also want to talk about the challenging challenges because I think uh, they now go beyond graduate student in that phase of being a graduate student. And so I would say first, uh, my approach to mentoring is that I find mentoring incredibly important. Um, and that as you outlined, I, you know, I start with undergrads, uh, graduate students, but I also find it very important for uh, beginning faculty members. I mentor a lot of junior faculty members beyond my own institution. Once your students uh, finish, mentoring doesn't uh, end. You know, you mentoring is a kind of lifelong relationship. Um, and uh, part of my mentoring philosophy, I think, is really transparency, explaining the hidden uh, codes, uh, making them visible. And that is the case, not just for graduate students, but also, as I said, for junior faculty. Um, having said that, um, in the context of our conversation, where we're thinking about really the shifting job market, um, I'm actually also not just rethinking mentoring on the graduate level, but also on the undergraduate level, because I think it's a real challenge when you have this incredibly talented, bright students come in as undergrads who have such great talent in a particular area in the humanities. And I think it was always our almost impulse to say, you have to go on. You are so talented. And now we really have to rethink that. What do we do with these undergrads that come in their first year and they have such a clear talent, knowledge, skill, passion in the humanities? What do we tell them and what do we educate them for? So to me, this whole question of graduate education in the humanities is not just contained with graduate education. And I'm realizing that right now, even in my undergraduate classes in terms of assignments, there was always this understanding that you teach your discipline and you teach your discipline at all levels. And the question really becomes, what am I educating undergraduate students for? Am I educating them to go to graduate school or am I educating them for skills that they can use in a variety of positions? And so uh, I just wanted to say that as a challenge. Uh, the other thing um, is I said, on one hand, yes, uh, mentorship is incredibly important to me, but I also think that increasingly, the professor is not the one that has the knowledge about these multiple pathways after graduation. And so I'm thinking also that maybe what we need is a much more radical rethinking in which, um, for example, we might think of an entirely different model where a center could be a hub for resources that exist at a university that includes the staff that works in the foundation, in the library, in instructional design, in museums, in archives, in career centers, and think about how can one access their knowledge and their skill in a way that doesn't overtask them, 
but also credits them with knowing and being able to um, mentor, inform, impart knowledge in workshops, in information sessions, in informational interviews to graduate students. And that maybe professors can, just cannot be the only source of information or knowledge um, in mentorship. And, um, and this also goes back to um, Kelly's interest in alumni, right? That a lot of schools think about alumni networks as a network to think about informational interviews. Or I'm also thinking of Maria LaMonica Wisdom at Duke University, who believes in coaching and sort of beyond the discipline, thinking more of graduate school as a transition and sort of peer that there are different phases in graduate school at which students need different kinds of mentoring and helping people with, uh, you know, mentoring each other. So, I mean, Lauren knows that that I have a dissertation writing group that includes former students who are now in different kinds of positions. And so that it's almost like it's a dissertation writing group that includes students at the pre-dissertation writing stage, the dissertation writing stage, and then what do you do afterwards so that people can learn from each other but also learn about the opportunities and the frustrations. And so I'm saying all of this to say that, yes, I'm deeply committed to mentoring, but I also think that that model in itself might not be the best model to achieve what I think we're all interested in, and that the, the solution might be a little bit more radical than just adding you know, saying, oh, Professor X can also have coffee with, you know, the dissertation student, because then you have these kinds of old issues of proprietary relationship to the student. And I think um, it really needs potentially a quite different solution. And one thing that I would like to acknowledge in terms of uh, challenges and sort of maybe positive outlooks is that I think a lot of junior faculty who are entering the profession now do have a different training because they very often already had sort of a dual career orientation of being on the one hand orienting towards the professorate, but on the other hand, also doing digital humanities, instructional design, public humanities, because they themselves already didn't know whether they will get a job. And so they're often much better equipped in doing these kinds of multiple tracks or having a kind of openness or also thinking about how those tracks aren't absolutely separate, but you also need those kinds of skills now within the professoriate. Can I just weigh in to say, you know, the, so my mentor, who I realize I haven't said by name, so I am going to name him, um, he, he's the Dean of Humanities at UC Irvine now, Dean Tyrus Miller. Um, he would always talk about distributed mentorship models and it just brings, you know, so both of you, right, have that in common where it's, you're not the only one that you see as the source of expertise, that there is an openness to recognizing that there is, that there are different forms of expertise all over. I know it's complicated in terms of just what you were saying, Barbara. Um, but I do think then there, I think the other thing that needs to be addressed is, um, there needs to be mentorship for the mentors uh, because these are not things that are 
in my experience and from what I've heard, these are you are not taught how to mentor. That is not part of the training for many faculty. Um, so it strikes me as an opportunity, um, you know, too, for, for, for maybe for humanity centers. But to kind of ask you both um, a question that is a bit broad and, you know, has, has many, many pitfalls and maybe is not the best framed, but this is the question we've asked all our guests. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing humanities graduate? education, if you were to only kind of talk about a few. And this is also a question that um, is open to everybody. So Lauren and I will also kind of jump in here. Do you guys want to start us off? Or how about one of you start us off? Lauren, (laughs) do you want to start? I mean, I think the, you know, the most obvious one is jobs and how people go on afterwards. I think that that is the obvious place to start because we all know the situation where they're just, there are too many graduate students and not enough jobs going forward. And a lot of really talented people aren't doing that. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what, what, does it mean then that we're still admitting all these graduate students who we know the vast majority of them will not get that tenure track job that we kind of see as like almost this like unicorn kind of thing now to have that job and that the requirements to even get that job out of graduate school keep going up and up like they expect you to have more publications whereas you know maybe 10 years ago you only needed one publication and all of that kind of thing so I would say that's the starting point for me that I've still kind of had as my sticking point uh, through doing this project. I, I would agree there with Lauren I think I mean this podcast was, you know, an, an idea that partly started because Kelly, you asked me to work on the adjuncting pages for stories from the field. And so just doing all that research on the state of adjuncting, the state of economic outcomes for humanities PhDs, um, and just kind of tying that to, you know, our experiences of being graduate students and being in this very precarious position um, that feels under acknowledged, um, I feel like that would kind of be a good place to start because there seems to be a disconnect between um, just like how, how difficult it is to get a tenure track job versus kind of this almost like blind optimism sometimes that departments have about their students getting tenure track jobs. Um, and so kind of starting with like the material conditions and the job market um, it is a good place, I think. I mean, what if we just radically changed how we thought about the value of work and what work, how it can be valued, how, what it contributes value to, right? So if we, if we see, if, we're, if we allow ourselves to engage with all sorts of work in the world, not just the professoriate, there may be the chance that we could see value in other things, in journalism, in healthcare, in um, the arts, in, in other areas, uh, in government. Um, so if we start, you know, and that's why I think alumni tracking is important is that it forces you to engage with these other fields, these other industries, but not just in the sense of like getting a job, but what's the work going on and what needs to happen, what changes need to be affected, what, what, how are these industries affecting our world as is, Man, that's like, isn't that the role of the humanities to be engaged in questions like that? So I think maybe it's like opening up and not just so opening up what we see as a success 
for our PhDs, and not just so that we can justify them going through grad school. So it's not that we say, oh, we're comfortable with you going and working at Google. Look at you can have those transferable skills, and that's how we justify having you come in TA for seven years, because then you're going to... Um, you're, you're going to, you know, transition that CV into a resume and done. But really that we actually think that there are opportunities and Google might not be what I would personally use to make that case, but there are lots of ways to make it. Um, you know, I think that's the question for humanities graduate education, that wrestling is what's important. What are the values guiding us, especially as we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion? So what are the values of the humanities? What do we see as our future um, that isn't just a sort of protecting what's been in the past? Um, I think we have to ask ourselves questions around how do we best support, if we really care about first-gen and underrepresented scholars, truly care, how do we best support them? How do the structures support them? Um, and I will just say that I think we have a major issue on our hands currently in terms of research infrastructure. Um, at the UC system, it's groaning, and that's because it's you know we're in, the student cohorts are increasing in some ways. We're we're starting to hire faculty, all very good things, but staffing, for example, I mean I talk about this endlessly. Staffing has not kept up with that, and so there's a trick. There's a major trickle down effect, and I just want to highlight. I mean, in some ways, I just want to ignore grad students, which I don't normally do. But if I if I just like ignore them, I worry about faculty. I worry about how it's going to impact their ability to mentor graduate students, which then does very much affect the grad students. But faculty are picking up more and more, um, in part because there are fewer and fewer staff. Um, I'm like, we're all nodding because it's very much a reality. And it's not just us. It's, it's across, I can speak uh, with certainty, it's across the UC system. So those are, those are what I see as the issues, which are values and work, like how it actually is going to work as a system and hopefully a system that has the right values. So, Yeah, I'm going to just expand on what has already been said. There is that overproduction of PhDs and then paradoxically, it's also a problem that there's an underfunding of humanities. And yes, the job market is bad, but I think one of the issues that's not been talked about a lot is that tenure track positions are often not good positions anymore either. So I have by now three graduate students who left tenure track positions that have a 4-4 or 5-5 teaching load. And so what's happening to me lately is that I'm becoming more concerned with what is going to happen with scholarship itself. And you see that when you evaluate grant applications, when people have uh, three one-year positions in a row and they apply for a one-year leave to write, do research and write a book, we just cannot assume that it will have the same quality as somebody who is in a tenure-track position has a lot of time. And so I'm concerned with graduate education in that equation that traditionally graduate students advanced fields. And I think that is also something that is being forgotten. Graduate students are the force that is supposed to innovate disciplines. And if graduate students lose their passion and their self-confidence and their sort of awareness of their importance and stop taking risks because they're focused on the job market or not actually doing the research serious. I'm really also concerned about 
scholarly stagnation because it's dissertations that are innovative that six years later will be innovative books. And so, um, yeah, so I'm really also concerned about not just the material, but also the kind of psychological effects of graduate education in the humanities now having been cast as a problem and a challenge and a crisis instead of innovation and move forward and sort of a future orientation. And that's maybe, and that's also a place where I find one sometimes also has to acknowledge that the position that our position in the institution does also determine our interest. And there might be a difference between a difference between what is most pressing for graduate students and what we who are still in the institution, you know, have to be concerned with. And that's maybe also more abstract and that than, you know, just sort of the survival of the individual graduate students. And so that's something that I will say is a more recent concern of mine, because I do think that question of work and precarity and labor has very much determined the discourse. But I also think if we look ahead and think long term, there's also going to be really significant changes in how scholarship will look and how knowledge will look in the humanities. So what do you think then are the most pressing changes that need to be made to graduate education to kind of address these things that we've all been talking about? Well, maybe I'd start with some that sound not as revolutionary. I think, yeah, thinking about different skills, knowledges, and tracks within departments offer alternative dissertations that can also be helpful with an eye towards um, specialization of graduate students. Um, To go back to a word that uh, Kelly introduced, the risks, I would like to faculty administrators and graduate students to take more risks um, and to try out things, be experimental. And then I also still believe in professionalization for not just not just for the professorate and also not just for alternatives, but also uh, for graduate students to to sort of embrace possibilities beyond graduate school. I, I am really also concerned about graduate students uh, becoming attached to the safety of the institution and um, actually taking fewer risks both within the institution and beyond the institution. I kind of wanted to respond a little bit to some of that because I am a graduate student who's doing a different kind of dissertation. And so I'm making a film as part of it, even though I do film studies. And so my film kind of reflects or thinks about some of the things that I discuss in writing. But I think that also doing that has really prepared me to see other avenues of ways you can do scholarship, how it can be kind of, you know, with making a film, it's, it's creative in a different way. Not to say that scholarship isn't creative because it absolutely is, but it's flexing kind of a different muscle. And so I've, I guess I took that risk and I would say that I think some people have seen me as less serious because I did that instead of like, oh, you doing that necessarily means that like you're not as serious on the academic level because you want to go 
do something that isn't, you know, kind of like the safe that you're, you're saying. And so I, I just, I don't know, I feel kind of torn about it because I, that actually is probably the part of the dissertation that I've enjoyed the most in some ways is getting to do something else and think about how can scholarship change or, uh, something like that. But then I, I do think that maybe graduate students are kind of wanting to stay at the university. It seems safe because, you know, it, the uncertainty afterwards is what's hard to deal with. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't have kind of the university to do that. I also think that your health insurance being tied to your job is a huge reason that a lot of graduate students stay because if you don't have a job, you don't have health insurance, uh, which is, you know, a bigger problem than just the one that we're talking about. So I think that those are just to kind of respond a little bit um, to what you're saying. I might just add, I I think those are all really important points. Um, And I, you know, it's like, what year is it? And we're still talking about these things, you know? Um, So, yeah, you know, it's just like slow but steady, I guess. Um, I think, uh, you know, one thing that I was interested in is it would, I would be interested to know in an honest way why graduate students are going to graduate school today. I, I just... Yeah, I mean, I think that they're your, like, if they're your constituency, it might just be interesting to know why are they coming to grad school? Is it because they want to be tenure track faculty? Because of course, what we found in our focus groups was that not every, about a quarter of, um, a quarter of the people in our focus groups uh, did not go to school to, to get a PhD in order to become a professor. So 25%. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's significant enough to engage with. I agree, Barbara. I think the, you know, some of the pressing changes to grad education would be reintroducing the good kind of risk-taking, you know, the intellectual risk-taking. Um, that's certainly what attracted me to grad school. And I worry that in the move to almost over-professionalize people, that there's just not space for that. And in, and in part, because you're shoving a bunch of stuff in, it's hard. I mean, we it takes a while to produce scholarship for good reason, you know, because it's hard and because you have lives and because you think about things and you're in conversation with so many different voices. Um, and so how do we make sure that would be a value for the humanities that I would fight for is that that intellectual risk taking is a part of it. Um, I think that engaging alumni is one of the ways that I would change graduate education. How do you build alumni engagement in at various levels and creatively, even if they're there to just talk with and to run ideas by. I think uh, you can trust them. They've, they've made it through. Um, what, so I presented on this, on the stories from the field booklet yesterday at UC Santa Cruz via Zoom, and there were probably about 40 faculty and staff um, present for the conversation. And one of the first things that came up was from a literature professor, Christine Hong at Santa Cruz, who asked about um, certificates for teaching. And so I think that one of the changes that I would make for graduate education is that at the very least for us public institutions where so much of the time of a graduate student is in the classroom teaching, could you please make sure that they graduate with a certificate of teaching? At the very least, And then could you also make sure that in order to give them that certificate, they've had instruction in in pedagogy? Uh, And so Christine had, uh, Professor Hong had mentioned um, a a previous interest she'd had in connecting the literature department, for example, with the education department. And so I think that's that's a change that we could make that wouldn't necessarily impact curriculum, but would just put our students in a position where they had something to 
to rely on. And then the other, you know, change to graduate education that I'll, I just have to put out there is that for those of us who tried to live on sixteen or seventeen hundred dollars a month, it's very hard to do that. Um, and I think that uh, you know that that would be something to be aware of as we're talking about changes to graduate education and to recognize how much teaching is a part of that and how much else graduate students will need to do. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think I agree with what everyone is saying from kind of guaranteeing funding um, to uh, healthcare to taking intellectual risks, um, and I think they're all kind of tied together. Like if you have security on a material level, I think it's easier to kind of take take intellectual risks um, as well. Um, so next, we wanted to kind of talk about um, advice giving. And we recognize that there is already kind of a whole industry that gives advice for graduate students on how to navigate what is kind of a difficult time. Um, but what advice do you have for graduate students that other people um, might not have given already. I do have a list that's maybe a little bit repetitive and that is relatively short, but I do still think that graduate students should try to find their passion and their own voice despite all the circumstances. I am also a believer in hard work, I'm sorry to say. I hope that graduate students uh, support each other. I think that's really important. And so when we think of networks, really also think of lateral networks and not uh, only of sort of, you know, those who are above you. I think it's important not to fetishize certain scholars or theories. And um, I also think it's important not to be afraid to change course while you're in graduate school and not to have this assumption because you entered, you have to finish or, you know, or that you might also change your thinking about what that uh, degree means to you and really sort of make your own decisions. And in part, it comes from, of course, interacting with graduate students, but also I taught a seminar in the fall where we read only award-winning seminar papers, uh, dissertations, edited volumes, articles, books. And that's really what everybody said. A lot of the award-winning authors and scholars did not start out as humanities uh, majors. A lot of them started out in engineering or computer science, and they hung out with their friends after taking the engineering classes and they realized they were really interested in film. And so then, then you know, 15 years later, it appears as, oh, there's a material turn in film studies. But when people tell you their biography, it's actually quite a different story. And so I think there is a real danger in, you know, the kind of bad job market producing sort of bad habits and like trying to figure out what the market wants and how to adjust and finding the trend. And when you talk to people who are ultimately successful, I think, yeah, you have to find your own voice, your own passion, and it might lead you to becoming a professor or it might lead you somewhere else. But I think at least you then know that it's what you want in some way or shape or form. This is the scariest question. Of, of all the questions that you sent, I'm always hesitant to give advice. And that's actually my advice for the advice givers is like, maybe hesitate a bit more, you know, instead of that, I know, let me, let me tell you. And then, 
you know, Venmo me or whatever it is. Um, I've been out of grad school 11 years, so I'm out of touch. And even while I'm at the university and engaging with grad students and in conversation with them and all of that, I'm just going to admit I'm out of touch. I'm not in the classroom. You know, I'm not working with undergrads. I'm not in seminars. Uh, and my relationship with my mentor and mentors is different now because I'm, because I have the confidence um, and the title and the salary uh, of my position. And I think that that really does like put me in a particular place. Um, I, but I, but I will pass along some advice, take it or leave it. Um, I think one thing, you know, it's hard to say this in light of all the, of all the very real concerns around material conditions. Um, you know, and I'll just say, and June knows this, I'm six figures in educational debt. And the reason I'm in that debt is because um, I couldn't live on that stipend that Santa Cruz gave me. I chose not to work a side gig, even though my mother strongly urged me to do that. But I was, you know, I'm the first person in my family to get a PhD. Um, and I just was like, you don't get it. You don't get like, I need to catch up on all this critical theory and I don't have time and I have to be serious. And for me, being serious was not taking on anything else. And so what I did instead was take on student loans. And so I say that because I do recognize I, I had, I struggled at Santa Cruz economically, but, but so, so I recognize that, but one piece of advice that I got from, from Ty um, as I was studying for my qualifying exams, he reminded me that this should be enjoyable, that actually to take time and to really enjoy that part, especially before the dissertation, but even during the dissertation, just the reading part. And so that would be one piece of advice. Like if my daughter were in grad school, I would be telling her that, like really enjoy reading and rereading and being in conversation. And Barbara, just to pick up on one of the first points you made, building a community is so important. And to just like fuck the competitive model where you're constantly in competition for that grant is to break through those barriers and to find people. I didn't do that enough at Santa Cruz. Um, I found them through the alumni engagement though. Um, so I've been able to make, a, you know, I've been able to make a community for myself and for hundreds of grad students through Humanists at Work. I think that's the most important thing um, and then two last pieces of advice um, is the first is uh, the first of the last two is to find your voice. I, I believe in hard work and rigorous scholarship, but I actually don't think we all need to write in the same voice. And that's something I also regret. Um, if I were to do my dissertation over again, there were lots of things I would change, but I think the voice, the voice would change. Um, and that's just something that I've come into in an administrative role is finding a different voice. Um, and maybe the forms help enable that. And, and the last thing, and this is to, and this is to scholars, like first gen scholars and scholars of color is that, um, and a lot of the work I've been doing lately is supporting underrepresented, uh, an underrepresented faculty fellows group and conversations they've been having, um, is just to say the advice is that you belong, you belong there just as much as anyone else. And you have the right to ask for things and to not be afraid to ask, whether it's for knowledge, whether it's for resources, whether it's for access. I mean, that's my advice is to not be afraid to ask. And that's just something that took me a long time to realize, too, um, and to compare my situation to others. So, I think that's all great advice. I mean, I think about something because I've made some documentary films I had to get kind of comfortable asking people for things and I think that made me more comfortable asking people for things in other instances and I in talking to my other friends they're always like oh you asked so and so about that and I was like 
yeah, why wouldn't I? I mean, the worst that can happen is that they say no, and you're right where you were the whole time. And I think since Dr. Mill and I have had a long uh, relationship with mentoring, uh, something that you told me a long time ago that I, you kind of said, but that I think about a lot and that I end up repeating a lot to my other grad student friends is like, you know, I can give advice, but you get to decide if you take that advice or not, and you should do what is the best for you. Like just because your advisor tells you this thing, that doesn't mean that's what you have to do. And so I think that that really helped me think about, you know, I I have to live with the choices that I make. And so I can ask people for advice, but then I should also really think about what works for me. So then do you have any advice for the advice givers? Uh, are there any kinds of things that you wish that they would say or wouldn't say or kind of would stop talking about? I mean, there are a couple of different types of advice givers. So you're, <laughs> this is where I have an endless amount to say, but I am wary of those. Outs- I would love to see, I, I still in a full-hearted way, believe in institutions and the role that institutions have to play, and in particular public institutions. And I would say to those people who have monetized this that, you know, um, I think that you can provide a really valuable service, but what would it look like if you helped build an institution so that there was more equitable access um, and that you could tap into the mission of public universities in a way that would have a far more, a far-reaching effect? Um, you know, so that's, that's my advice to those. I think to, to my friends, and I do consider them friends within the institution who are giving advice, I've, I learn a lot from them. You know, I'm thinking about people in career centers. I think the one piece of advice I do have is that um, as you're giving advice, like Lauren, to the point that you made, you know, which is take it or leave it, but also that there are many different, like so, many of these issues can't be solved. And that sort of problem you know, answer, question, answer, I would say, can we move away from that model? And I I think especially for those of us in the humanities who are struggling with just a variety of different identities and perspectives and interests and values, that that advice giving should take that into account. And it doesn't mean that you failed in giving advice if it's a bit ambiguous. That I think that's okay. I think I think it's a process that we should be working on. How do you help people have what they need in order to make decisions for themselves? I think this, again, is actually one of the more challenging questions for me. So on one hand, I think I also want to give a little bit of credit to the challenges of professors in mentorship in regard to the current situation, because it takes so long for the graduate student process. So if you think of the life of a professor, very often when professors begin as assistant professors, they're often actually not asked or permitted to supervise a dissertation. So you can imagine that it takes three to six years until they even begin to supervise a dissertation. So then you have the years of the dissertation, and then you have the first or second student go on the job market. So what the job market really means in a very sort of personal, intimate way, a professor might experience maybe only 10 or more years after they're on the job. And so for them to have a kind of access to a cohort where they can say, okay, this is what I learned from my own students on the job market 
takes a very long time. And that's a real challenge to then sort of have a feedback loop to give advice based on the experience. Because um, going back to something that June said at the very beginning was like, they used the word, you used the word blind optimism. And honestly, I barely know anybody who has blind optimism anymore. I honestly don't think that's really the case. But I also think that very often we actually do get excited about the skills and the knowledges and the ideas of our students. And we think they should get a job because of their portfolio. And it's really we get as sort of disappointed and surprised if they don't, because we think they have everything they should have to get a job on the job market. And so I think it just really takes some time for faculty members to figure out, um, you know, mentorship specifically around dissertation and the job market. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is, and I think, you know, Kelly has sort of indicated this already, it's just known that women and faculty of color and women of color do much more mentoring work. And, uh, and it's really hard for graduate students to sort of demand this by other members of the profession. And I know that I had that experience myself. I had a male advisor and I thought I should just actually demand it from him so that the other members of my committee wouldn't have to do it. And I just actually couldn't get him to do it. I would go and I would say, so-and-so, what do you think about this? And there was just nothing forthcoming. And so I think there are ways to think about this institutionally and to find ways, you know, to say that certain people who are overloaded get a teaching reduction somewhere else. And those are institutional solutions. So one of the things that also happens in crises is that mentorship advice becomes compensatory to uh, lack in the institution. And that is also frustrating. So there's a way in which I, I would say as much as I enjoy mentorship, you know, and it's one of the really pleasurable parts of my profession, the frustration lies in the fact that I often think I'm compensating for something that there should be a different kind of institutional solution for this problem. It should not be me having a conversation with somebody to make them feel better about something that's actually an institutional problem. And that sort of, that creates a kind of exhaustion actually with mentorship. And that I think is a different kind of mentorship than let's say, um, you know, helping somebody advance their ideas, find, helping them find their voice, helping them find their passion, helping them move forward. When you sense that you're actually making up for something that the institution should provide and is not providing, and you are actually doing this kind of then emotional uh, care work ultimately. So, um, but to come back to that question of, you know, uh, what are alternative forms of then to do advice? Um, what are more interactive, you know, workshop formats, distributed labor? Um, one of the things that I 
also only learned recently through our assistant director, former assistant director for graduate engagement, was that for a long time, I was just fundamentally suspicious for any kind of uh, paid commercial advice and mentorship. It was sort of a fundamental misgiving that I thought, you know, this is kind of what's wrong with society. We should all be supportive of each other. Nobody should have to pay for it. But then I I attended several of these events and I realized, well, maybe there is something that these kinds of organizations can do because they're not the institution that gives you the PhD and because they can talk about the world in a different way. And so I think that my whole attitude towards mentoring, advice, workshop is shifting and that I think um, there, there are sort of multiple ways now and we can sort of access these different ways now with the virtual, you know, there's sort of another addition. How can we bring different people together? How can different people so podcasting, work through issues. I mean, this is what you're doing now in a certain way is also a form of advice, negotiation, mentorship um, that is, you know, is what people are talking about doing this for other graduate students. So to kind of zoom out a little bit, um, you know, we've had your, both of your advice from the beginning of this podcast series from its conception. And, you know, I think both of you sort of pushed us to think about doing this differently than how people usually frame career diversity conversations. I know one thing we talked about with this podcast, for instance, is inclusivity and especially like racial diversity mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. whose voices um, are at the table, um, mm-hmm. which guests we interview. Mm-hmm. So if you could speak a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you know, that's been one of my, my like something that I talk a lot about, which is that I still think that the national conversation and even the conversations I see across the UC, not exclusively, but a lot of them are still predominantly white. Um, And so I think it's something that doesn't speak to my values. It doesn't speak to my lived experience here in the UC. Um, And it certainly doesn't speak to how I want to build, remake, whatever the university moving forward. So I think that's an area that must be addressed because I do regularly see all white panels, um, you know, on a national level. Um, I think that, you know, um, I think more room for complexity and ambiguity. I think, I think that's, that's always an interest for me. And I think that especially in a moment where, you know, the cliche of we're all, divided and, you know, there's two sides of an opinion. And, um, you know, while I recognize that there are some issues where there are really just two sides (laughs) to the issue, um, I think the humanities represent something else. And I would like to see more of our methodological approach represented in career conversations. That for me is important. And I do see it. So it's not that I don't see it, but the more that we can do to push in that area, or in that direction, the better. Um, And I do, again, I'll push again, I think there are more creative ways to engage alumni than we are engaging them. And so, you know, the career panel, everybody's game with that, but there are so many other ways that alumni can be involved. 
Um, so I would want us to think about that. I would say there needs to be national funding around alumni engagement and something around work, alumni engagement and graduate education. For me, that's, I would, you know, love to write a grant that addressed that. Let me go maybe from the broad to the more specific. So I think I heard you ask first, um, you know, uh, what is missing in the discourse of professionalization. So I would say I'm the first generation that entered their dissertation writing when professionalization began. Um, So before that, you know, you could just be, let's say, a beer drinking, dissertating graduate student, you would still get a job, you know, and it's sort of my generation where people started writing articles while they're in graduate school, you know, where graduate students started putting on graduate student conferences, you know, where you had all these kinds of things. And it was actually quite uh, self-organized at that point. So it was also driven, I mean, like that's sort of one of these contradictions to it was driven in a certain way also from ground up because graduate students felt they weren't getting jobs anymore. And so they felt they had to be more professional and they asked their professors to be, but, uh, you know, to assist them. But of course, now we see also there is, of course, a dark side to professionalization, right? It becomes uh, a numbers game on CVs. People don't really engage with the ideas as much as they feel they have to, you know, complete a certain number of publications and it feeds into the expectations of the institutions for productivity and so you know so we're kind of creating our own monsters and and that's a really hard uh, conflict the same way that I talked about you know on one hand overproduction of PhDs but on the other hand humanities departments are underfunded and to kind of think about those two things together I think is really challenging and, and so that's, I would just leave this out there as it is a challenge. And uh, as Kelly said, yeah, people end up on one side or the other of this debate. And I think one of the skills we should have is negotiate that kind of ambivalence and challenge and, and contradiction. This roundtable is the last episode of our series recorded just before we graduated with our PhDs last summer. A lot has happened since then, and it's been a whirlwind of transitions for all of us. After we finished recording the podcast, Lauren flew to Irvine and attended my graduation where we met for the first time in person. A few months later, I moved to Shanghai to work as the curatorial fellow at NYU Shanghai's Institute of Contemporary Art. Lauren is preparing to start her new job as the assistant director of the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies at the University of Iowa. Kelly is moving into a new position as the Director of Media Relations and Communications for UCI School of Humanities. And lastly, Barbara is in the process of stepping down as the Director of the UF Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere by the beginning of this fall. This podcast is the last of the series and our way of reflecting on our non-traditional paths in the profession. As the journey of graduate school itself is transitional, Our paths crossed in the most productive and inspiring way possible. Thank you for joining us on this journey, and we wish you well as you navigate your careers during and after graduate school. This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell-Cox and June Key, with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute 
and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.